So it is the recorder of man's deeds, the keeper of his conscience, the courier of his news, that we look for strength and assistance, confident that with your help, man will be what he was born to be, free and independent. In your heart, you know he's right. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. This is Liberty in Exile with your host, Yael Osofsky. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I come to bring you liberty, not destroy it. The evil that governments do lives after them. The good is often turned with their bones, so let it be with liberty in exile. Hello and welcome to the program once more. This is the 7th day of May in the year 2013. We're broadcasting to you, as always, from Das Freiheit Studio in Vienna, Austria, in the United States of Europe. It is uh, quite a rainy day today, and we've been filled with plenty of news here in the United States of Europe, so it's time to move on to the news. But uh, I guess as a precursor to this show, I must explain my travels and the beautiful European circumstances which do befall me. That is life, and that is experience. So it's uh, sort of been a crazy week or two, uh, right here on Liberty in Exile, apart from traveling from, uh, I guess I would say, the, the belly of Europe, that is in Vienna, the most beautiful city of all, of course. I was fortunate enough to go and Traveled to Switzerland for a while to uh, try to hang out with the European Students for Liberty folk, and then uh, made my way all the way to America with my lovely girlfriend to try to, I guess, enjoy a little bit of the local celebrations of a nice wedding, so that was a lot of fun. But uh, we are back here at the microphone, and of course it's always so endearing to be back in the United States and to see the propaganda model at work to see how much, uh, just going into the airport, people are paying attention to CNN on the latest, Boston Bombers. And just the, all the propaganda is thrown at these people, and of course they take hook, line, and sinker. And it's very sad. It's very sad in a way, even if I had worked as a journalist and was working perhaps to try to bring new type of information and analysis to all types of people. It seems as if the majority of them, if they are paying attention to this, and I do hope that they are being skeptical, but other, if they're not, then they're being fed a lot, a lot of garbage. So that's uh, sort of my last week, which has been amazing. Uh, we'll also talk a little bit more about what's going on in especially the United States of Europe, but also what's going on closer to the Middle East, closer to the places like Syria, closer to the places uh, basically that have now become the new war zones of the 21st century. And uh, I think the most important article that we can point to is in the show notes at libertyinexile.com and a reminder that we are broadcasting on the Liberty Radio Network and the No Agenda stream. So if you head on over to libertyinexile.com, you'll see under the category The Syrian Affair, 
We'll have a great article from the Daily Mail, in which it is from a madam of the UN. Her name is Carla del Ponte, who says, now she's a member of the UN Commission, she is basically saying that all these uh, reports about gas attacks, uh, sarin gas attacks, which uh, have been blamed, of course, on the Syria, uh, I guess the Syrian regime, uh, uh, Bashar Ashad and all his friends out there, Basically, what she's saying is that it's actually the rebel groups that are the ones who actually uh, were the ones who finally put out these weapons. And as we know, the rebel groups are the ones financed by the Western governments. In the EU, they're talking about right now trying to send a lot of aid. The uh, CIA, there's a good article in New York Times which talks about how they began giving a lot of uh, support actually back in 2012. So this is a, a fairly old article. I've also linked to it on Liberty in Exile Dot com, but I'll uh, just read from the Daily Mail article because I think this is uh, very important. A senior United Nations official has claimed that Syrian rebels may have used chemical weapons against government forces. Carla Del Ponte said evidence from casualties and medical staff indicated that rebel forces in the civil war had used the deadly nerve agent sarin. Quote, our investigators have been in neighboring countries interviewing victims, doctors, and field hospitals, and there are strong, concrete suspicions, but not yet incontrovertible proof of the use of sarin gas, said Del Ponte. She was uh, speaking with a Swiss-Italian TV channel. Now, what does this do? This cuts down the Western narrative that it's those evil, bad Syrian government people who are harming everyone and killing their own people. You've heard the meme. When really, in the end, we find out that it's the people who are receiving aid and are probably supported all the way by the Western governments, Western intelligence agencies, Western civil society groups, uh, Friends of Syria, for example, they're actually the ones who have these chemical weapons. And I think this is also very pointed in what we have going on with the state of Israel, which itself seems to be getting in on the mix and wants to, I guess, cut in a little bit of the action. Number two, Israel confirms that it conducted an airstrike Friday in Syria. An Israeli official tells Reuters that strikes started, uh, or rather targeted, a shipment of missiles bound for Hezbollah in Lebanon. Now, the attack was authorized in a secret security cabinet meeting. Israeli officials long have vowed to strike targets they think are being used to transfer weapons to terrorist groups. Number three, Number now, three President now, President... So we heard it there that Israel confirms, as the guy was saying that they bombed Syria. Now, in normal times, if this was any other country that perhaps housed brown people, these people would be invaded by a world coalition in no time. That's sort of the narrative of what's going on, what happened in Iraq during the first Persian Gulf War. But, of course, this is <laughs> swept under the rug. It's Israel, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, the reason why this is important is I have another article here, which is fascinating. Uh, of course, it is in the show notes, libertyinexile.com. It's, again, from the Syrian Affair, and it's from the Jerusalem Post. Now, I sort of see it as the most read English uh, website over there in Israel. It seems to be a good source. If it's not, you can send me an email, yael at live.ca, y-a-e-l at live.ca. You can tell me otherwise. I seem to think uh, they, their articles are fine. But they're sort of, uh, <laughs> they're quoting a, uh, a former Bush administration official who is saying basically that the use of chemical weapons in Syria was actually a false flag operation of Israel 
which was meant to implicate the Syrian President Bashar Assad and to basically, I guess, be the precursor for the invasion, whether it be of Israel itself or the United States who would come and help its ally. Now, this guy who said it is a retired Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson. He apparently is Colin Powell's former chief of staff. So this guy's on the payroll. This guy is obviously in the know. He knows what's up. He's no, he knows what's going on. And I mean, it's not to say that I believe him 100%, nor should anyone else. But really, when we're looking at this situation, what are really we going to see by watching channels like CNN or trying to read the New York Times? We're going to get nothing but garbage that has been recycled by the government. And I saw the press conference that was given by spokeshole Mr. Jay Carney just about why he believes, of course, that this is just how the government works. If they believe that it's the government that has used chemical weapons, then it must be true, even if the UN is now coming out and saying it was the other group. And even so, their only proof in the beginning, I believe, was that their mouths were frothy. I think that that, that was the thing. They had frothy mouths. They were foaming at the mouth. We, we played a, a clip last time. So I think that's just a, just a goes to show you how crazy this whole thing is. And now again, I read this morning that the UN is apparently backpedaling uh, what the Italian commissioner said. And now apparently there was absolutely no use of any chemical weapons anywhere. So that's another thing that we're going to have to, to try to keep on here on Liberty in Exile. It's uh, just another crazy world out there. And the other links I've included on the show notes uh, also deals with the U.S. role in Syria. I have an article from back in March. Uh, it's called Arms Airlift to Syria. Rebels expand with aid from the CIA. That one, there's a, an article from Reuters about how the Obama has authorized secret U.S. support for Syrian rebels. And, and the reason I guess I have to include these articles is because now sort of the narrative is, well, you know, uh, the government is not officially sending weapons over there. So, of course, we cannot be held liable. That, that's sort of uh, what the Washington Post was saying earlier today. They have an article about Obama moving towards sending lethal arms to Syrian rebels, officials say. Now, these are reporters who are directly reading off the press release and just don't understand what's going on. Obviously, do not read the other news sources because there is a bunch of money and a bunch of weapons, and these are the Al-Qaeders. This is who the bad guys, apparently, the ones that we're always supposed to be scared of, and the reason we have a police state in the United States is because of the Al-Qaeda group, and now apparently they're cool and they're good if they go after the right people. So that's uh, one little piece of the Syrian affair. There'll be much more, much more to go on, and I'll try to link also in the show notes our good friend, the Fergus Hodgson, the stateless man, did an interview, I believe, on Russia Today about uh, this subject and about Israel's invasion or bombing, as it were. So I think that's that's very interesting. That'll be a good point to go on. But uh, since I am now in the European Union, it's time to talk a little bit about what's going on with the central bank, ladies and gentlemen. European Central Bank President Mario Draghi is telling Eurozone governments they have to keep control of their spending and particularly countries with lots of debt must push on with budget reforms. Debtors. But responding to worries about the effects of austerity, he did warn that governments should mitigate the impact of that austerity on growth. 
He told an audience in Rome, in this context, the struggle to come up with a common response to the sovereign debt crisis has had a negative effect in terms of how the financial markets see us. But now we've reached the point where, for the process of European monetary integration to survive, we need a growth compact together with the fiscal... Okay, so this guy's insane. We'll just start off there. But the reason I wanted to play this clip is because it goes to show just what the project of the European Union is doing so far. And the reason I sort of started this segment with Syria is that you had many different cases of countries that would like to intervene, that would like to change the EU policy to that of intervention, and the solid examples are France and Britain, which have been very adamant about sending support to the rebel groups and doing everything they can to try to overthrow this terrible regime, which I guess is stopping progress to the oil pipeline. Ding! But the reason I wanted to play that is because even in that Syrian scenario, you have countries in the EU which are actually very pissed about what's going on, about what could happen if the EU as an institution starts sending over money or weapons or who knows what else. And that's why the Austrian foreign minister, this is when I have to be proud to be in Austria, came out and said, uh, you know, you're going to give money to the same people who shot at our peacekeepers and basically tried to bomb them. So why the hell should we be giving any money to these people at all if all they do is kill our soldiers or almost attempt to kill our peacemakers? And they're Al-Qaeda. That was, that's the narrative. You can't keep messing people up who are watching news if you say Al-Qaeda is the terrible bad thing, they want to bomb people in Boston, and at the same time, we need to help them in Syria. You can't do this type of cognitive dissonance with people because it will just confuse them. And I guess maybe this is the public relations sort of about-face that they've had to do in the 21st century and the rise of the Internet. Try to muddle the stories as much as possible so that people can push their narrative if they're more powerful and are louder. Apparently that seems to be the case. And right now, as far as European economics are concerned, it's very, very hard to do. Another bailout might be along the lines. Slovenia might be the next country, which sort of saddens me as a a very beautiful nation with large mountains that I've been to, not, not see much else. They're the ones that seem to be next coming down the pipeline. We've already had Portugal, and uh, we've already had Greece, and uh, we're talking about Spain, and now we're talking about Italy. I mean, who knows how far this will go. The European project as it is it really is in a state of... of it's a dismal affair, ladies and gentlemen. It's not a party I would like to be invited to. I hope you would not like to go there either, but that's the, the new reality of the EU SSR. Now we're having to deal with these large bureaucratic institutions which are attempting to try to rule, trying to rule over over 500 million people in Europe. They talk about why it's dangerous to have populism, why it's dangerous to have elections, and why it's dangerous for any sort of political forces to come up who have not been given the green light by the Troika. And we've seen uh, some successes uh, going on right now in Britain. We have UKIP, which has started to come up, and you might not agree with all of their policies, but at least they're pushing for the right message on the Euro and Europe. And you also have a lot of skepticism that is reigning in Greece, obviously as trying to push back against these austerity measures. And then we also have a large push as well in places, well, like Austria, a lot of places like Finland, and who knows how, how long it'll go, how far it'll go, and I guess the biggest movement that we could talk about is in Germany. 
Now, in Germany, they have a, an interesting movement sort of going against the euro, and uh, there's a new party. It's called the Alternative für Deutschland, uh, the you know, alternative for Germany, talking about living in a world without the euro. They believe they could do it. They believe they would exist fine. They don't believe there'd be much of a problem, and that, that's a, it's a good, it's an interesting message. I think a lot of people who I follow and, and definitely who I speak to are, are very adamant that, well, they're not the perfect libertarian party and they're reactionaries and they're single-issue single, single issue parties. The fact is that they're saying the right thing, and I don't really care about a single-issue party or this or that. If they're saying the right thing, then, hey, you got to give them some leeway, you got to give them some measure of support. doesn't mean everyone has to go out there and vote, of course, but I think it's it's quite... Interesting to see that, especially in a place like Germany, which so far has not really had much resistance. Until today, here's an article from The Telegraph, uh, apparently about Oscar Lafontaine, who used to be the German finance minister who launched the euro, who is now called for the, quote, catastrophic currency to be broken up, and he's warning that the current course is, quote, leading to disaster. I think uh, this is very interesting that uh, this is going on. Perhaps this is maybe sort of a political play in Germany. I'm not really sure. I shall reach out to my German friends and see sort of what they think. I think that would be very interesting if we could uh, try to continue on that. At least this is debate. At least there's something new going on. At least there's some measure of democratic representation. I mean, it's not just the elites who are dictating to people anymore. At last, we have some sort of clarity so that is all well and good, and that is all fun, and it is all a part of free speech. Free speech is a <clears throat> great idea, but we're in a war. And uh, another measure that I, I just have to talk to since we're talking a little bit about Europe is, well, I have to say, ladies and gentlemen, it has been an interesting journey to see the rise of these Eurosceptic parties, and especially Nigel Farage, uh, who is now calling outright for an EU referendum, which is nothing new. Uh, there are big elections out there in Great Britain. I think it was the local council elections. I believe his party did uh, fairly well. I'm not really too interested in the party politics aspect, but just to see political forces rise at least brings some measure of hope. And, uh, you know, who knows? Maybe this will be enough to push for a referendum in the future. I'm not really sure. But we'll push on in the United States of Europe because that is what we shall continue to do. And here at Liberty in Exile, we'll continue to cover it, libertyinexile.com. Now, for those of you who are listening, if you're listening to the podcast, then uh, thank you for coming on board. Thank you for subscribing in iTunes. You can also subscribe at libertyinexile.com. Just hit the big RSS button and also follow me on the tweeters at Yaelossus. Y-A-E-L-O-S-S, and I will continue to try to push this narrative as long as I can. I was lucky enough to speak with, uh, as I was saying before, a good friend of mine, the stateless man, Fergus Hodgson, on his show. Uh, just yesterday, we talked a little bit about secession and talked a little bit about uh, my native province of Quebec and what's going on there, and it was it was very enjoyable to talk to him. I'll try to, as soon as that uh, interview comes through, to put that on the stream here on Liberty in Exile and Put that up on the website, so it would be an interesting measure, and it's sort of a different subject that we'd normally cover here on this program, and I, I have done an episode in French, and I'm hoping to do that again soon, if I can find the, the right compatria to do it with, so that will be a lot of fun, and I want to continue working with the stateless man, and I hope to, to try to give them as much material in the future, and hope to 
hope to, I guess, give a good joint podcast. So that's how it goes. And I do remind you, you're listening to the Liberty Radio Network and the No Agenda Stream. Let's go a little, uh, I guess we'll go a little, do a little fun subject. Let's talk about guns. Why don't we? We'll talk a little bit about what's going on in the world of weapons, specifically 3D printed weapons. Now, to a gun you can print off and then fire, yes, print off. It sounds far-fetched, but that's exactly what a controversial group in the U.S. has now created. The first working gun using a 3D printer. The inventor plans to put the design for the plastic weapon onto the Internet. Anti-firearms groups have criticised the project. Our science reporter, Rebecca Morell, travelled to Texas and she witnessed the gun being tested. Oh, no. Many thoughts this couldn't be done. Yeah. A moment to celebrate for its maker. But could this plastic firearm have grave implications for gun control around the world? All of the major parts of this weapon have been created with this $8,000 3D printer. Computer designs are fed in, and the machine builds each component from layer upon layer of plastic. Untraceable and potentially undetectable, And now Cody Wilson plans to make his blueprints freely available online. There's states all over the world outside the United States that believe, uh, or that say, we're a gun control state, you can't own a firearm. That's not true anymore. I'm seeing a world where technology says that you'll pretty much be able to have whatever you want. Aren't you worried about the kinds of people who'll be using this technology? I recognize that the tool might be used to harm other people. It's what it is, it's a gun. But um, (laughs) again, I don't think that's a reason to not do it or a reason to not put it out there. With today's successful test, and the aim to make this gun as easy to replicate as possible, 3D printing is already on the radar of law enforcement agencies around the world. This gun is legal in the US, but at the European Police Office headquarters, analysts are closely tracking developments. Criminals are still going to be able to access uh, weapons. By the way, you have to love these shill analysts who, every time they show them on these programs, are sitting in their office clicking away the computer and talk about the dangers of society. It's a great picture. It's a great mental image. Guns more easily offline, but some of these risks uh, will emerge, and and that could include, for instance, uh, sectors of society that haven't traditionally been able to get hold of weapons, like the criminally insane younger people. 3D printing has been hailed as the future of manufacturing, but with all new technology, along with the benefits, also come potential dangers. Rebecca Morrell, BBC News, Austin, Texas. Now, I didn't hear any sort of positive aspects of what she was saying. This is a dire and grim report from the BBC. And, of course, they don't like guns anyway, so they probably don't know what they're talking about. And uh, that's why it sort of also plays into my recent travels and going back to the U.S. and seeing, once again, what the gun culture is all about and is like. Completely different from here in Austria, completely different from anywhere in Europe. You're just talking about a very... I guess I would say a cultural, I, I don't want to say it's a kind of fetish, but I have to say it's a, a cultural respect for firearms. And you look, you look it up when you see it in these flyers from the, from the local stores and plenty of gun sales, you know, guns, $200, $300, $200 off when you get a free safe. I think for a lot of people, it's not in their frame of mind to even consider knowing anyone who owns any of these weapons at all, because they view, as I guess they've been watching too much television, that these things were just used to go out and kill people. And that's the end of the story. 
I mean, it's the same thing during the revolutionary times when a lot of basically every home had a musket. It wasn't as if they were going out and hunting humans every day. There were uses that they found in those time periods and sort of they've carried on with uh, new kinds of weapons and now 3D printed weapons. And there's already a report about how lawmakers are going to come out and uh, tell the rest of us how good they are and how bad we are for trying to put this. So they're trying to put a ban on 3D printed weapons. But as you all, we all know, the growth of technology will forever and somehow perhaps inevitably break apart the length and the chain between the citizen and the government and hopefully force can be eradicated in that sense. That is a hope and I guess a good book title if somebody wants to work on that. So that's a good story and we're seeing a lot of progress there and I I hope, I guess, to, to get some sort of machine going here in the in the next few years, uh, not having the, the funds right now to buy a 3D printer or something like $8,000. So not really willing to spend all of it, but I guess uh, if somebody is offering that service, then online we can probably print something pretty easily for a good price. So that's good to know, good to see, and good to feel. And that's the future of what's going on there. And it, it, it feels good. It feels good to know that there is this stuff going on and we are not having to be, sub I guess, subject to the same old standard status quo of having government put barriers in our way so we can acquire certain items or things because as we know they just make things worse. Yes, dear Wheeler, you provide the prose poems, I'll provide the war. So this is our media deception segment and I, the reason I, I love to play this clip is it is of course from the a movie Citizen Kane, all about the life of William Randolph Hearst and about the manufacturing of war and the manufacturing of consent for war, if I can use a term by, by Noam Chomsky. And we're seeing that very, very easily within the media today. And as I was saying, I'm very glad that I was able to go to the U.S. and spend time with friends and family, but I'm also <laughs> quite happy to be back away from the television, away from these programs, which, again, these zombies, people who are listening hook, line, and singer to what is being told, even though they have no critical analysis, none of this stuff. I'm hoping to, to write an article this week about the Boston bombers and sort of the new normal that's come about since then. There's a, a great article by Glenn Greenwald about how this guy on CNN, who's a former FBI counterterrorism dude, is talking about how, how easy it is to record every single conversation and how everything already is recorded, they just have to go back into the database, pull it up, and then they can find any sort of conversation you had with a, a friend, a family member, whether it be on the telephone, on Skype, email, who knows. So this is, is something that, obviously, we've talked about here for a while. We, I remember talking about it on Liberty in Exile back in, in Marial on CJLO 1690 AM, and... Goodness, I guess now it's in the public ether. <laughs> it's in the public domain. Perhaps people will be talking about it a little bit more, especially as Google gets more and more power and much more control of the web and becomes further entrenched with the government, and we'll see that uh, going on. So we'll keep an eye out for that, hopefully. And again, uh, you are listening to Liberty in Exile on the Liberty Radio Network, also in podcast form, uh, available on libertyinexile.com. Calm. Now, I have a, a few other clips I'd like to get to. Uh, I guess one I could play right now. This is uh, one I have to play when it comes especially to the last few months. There's been this growing culture of trying to denounce people who ask questions 
and who try to link things together or review documents or try to review stories. And I, that, that's sort of what I've tried to do on this program. And in many different media outlets, this kind of thinking is criticized. And people are called conspiracy theorists. And they're called those who basically are not speaking from fact. I love that word. And they're not talking about science enough. And there's a good clip I wanted to pull from George Carlin, a famous American comedian who had a lot to say about this in an interview he conducted, I believe, in the last two years of his life. Enjoy. Well, you know, if I had to say to you what is the answer, I would say massive bloodshed. I really would. Woo! I don't really, honestly, deep down believe in political action. I think the system contracts and expands as it wants to. It accommodates these changes. I think the civil rights movement was an accommodation on the part of the those who own the country. I think they see where their self-interest lies. They see a certain amount of freedom seems good, an illusion of liberty. Give these people, give these people a voting day every year so that they'll have the illusion of meaningless choice. Meaningless choice that we go like slaves and say, oh, I voted. The, the limits of debate in this country are... are, are are established before the debate even begins and everyone else is marginalized they're made to seem either to be communists or was some sort of disloyal person a kook there's a word kook. and now it's conspiracy say they've made that something that that is that is uh, sh should not be even entertained for a minute that powerful people might get together and have a plan doesn't happen you're a kook you're a conspiracy buff so who you know the only way you cure that Death, bloodshed. I don't advocate it, but I see that it's really the only answer. And of course, okay, so that's a nice little word from George Carlin, talking a little bit about conspiracy theorists, conspiracy buffs, those who are marginalized and who do not, I guess, succumb to the majority opinion. And that's sort of our struggle in the alternative media of trying to push forth that message. And a lot of people on this network, the Liberty Radio Network, are trying to do exactly the same thing. And it's great to, to be able to hear and listen to the stream and, and listen to other people who are engaging with these topics and other ones sort of in their own special way all across the country and the world. So that's, it's always great to, to hear that and to hear different types of interpretations. That's always perfect and well and dandy. However, what can you really do at the end of the day? What can you either as an individual on the interwebs, as a, an individual citizen, as a, perhaps a media producer yourself, really what can you do and what are you left to do? I guess now that we're sort of facing the Facebook algorithms which are limiting so much content and basically requiring people to spend money on advertising in order to attract likes or followers or to try to get their posts out there, you kind of have to wonder you know, what is the role of the individual now? What is your role as someone who perhaps has uh, learned a lot of information, perhaps that deviates from the mainstream narrative? You know, it's very hard to say. Everyone has tried to do their own thing. People write books. Some people make YouTube videos and are very good at that. Some people, uh, I guess like myself, try to make podcasts and put them out there. And a lot of other people are successful at just basically living out their own lives. And at the end, you cannot blame them. The people that some would say are disinterested are actually the ones who, it seems, are the most enlightened. The ones who are able to extract the most amount of happiness and enlightenment in their own lives. Not having to rely upon political structures. And not having to rely upon the will of the majority in order to basically achieve their goals and their desires. 
which really happens anytime anyone tries to petition government for anything. You're basically asking permission from the majority in order to do one thing or another. Please protect me. Please don't run over my property. Anything of the like. So that's a good little message that I always like to keep in. And of course, I like to brainstorm. It's, it's sort of good to do in the in the alternative media to see what can be to be brought forward and what can be talked about. So that's one way of looking at it. And since we're on the George Carlin uh, mobile, I guess you could say, I want to play another clip of his. This is one of his most famous stand-up routines. Uh, obviously, the context is the first Persian Gulf War of the 1990s. But again, everything he's saying in those days applies to today and probably even more so. So this is uh, George Carlin. The title of the clip is We Like War. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this will have a curse word or two, so please, if you have children, take them away from the stereo, unplug the headphones that they have in their ears out, and perhaps get them in a separate room. We don't want to let them, let them listen to this type of language. Here's George Carlin. I'd like to talk a little bit about the war in the Persian Gulf. Big doings in the Persian Gulf. You know my favorite part of that war? It's the first war we ever had that was on every channel plus cable. And the war got good ratings too, didn't it? Got good ratings. Well, we like war. We like war. We're a warlike people. Yeah. We like war because we're good at it. And you know why we're good at it? Because we get a lot of practice. This country's only 200 years old and already we've had 10 major wars. We average a major war every 20 years in this country, so we're good at it. And it's a good thing we are. We're not very good at anything else anymore. Huh? Can't build a decent car. Can't make a TV set or a VCR worth the fuck. Got no steel industry left. Can't educate our young people. Can't get health care to our old people. But we can bomb the shit out of your country, all right? Especially if your country is full of brown people. Oh, we like that, don't we? That's our hobby. That's our new job in the world, bombing brown people. Iraq, Panama, Grenada, Libya, you got some brown people in your country, tell them to watch the fuck out. Or we'll goddamn bomb them. Well, when's the last white people you can remember that we bombed? Can you remember the last white? Can you remember any white people? We've ever bombed the Germans. Those are the only ones. And that's only because they were trying to cut in on our action. They wanted to dominate the world. Bullshit. That's our fucking job. That's our fucking job. Now we only bomb brown people. Not because they're trying to cut in on our action, just because they're brown. Now, you probably noticed I don't feel about that war. We were told we were supposed to feel about that war the way we were ordered and instructed by the United States government to feel about that war. You see, I tell you, my mind doesn't work that way. I got this real moron thing I do. It's called thinking. And I'm not a very good American because I like to form my own opinions. I don't just roll over when I'm told to. Sad to say, most Americans just roll over on command, not me. I have certain rules I live by. My first rule, I don't believe anything the government tells me. Zero. Nope. 
And I don't take very seriously the media or the press in this country, who in the case of the Persian Gulf War were nothing more than unpaid employees of the Department of Defense, and who most of the time, most of the time, function as kind of an unofficial public relations agency for the United States government. So I don't listen to them, I don't really believe in my country, and I gotta tell you folks, I don't get all choked up about yellow ribbons and American flags. I consider them, I consider them to be symbols, and I leave symbols to the symbol-minded. The symbol-minded, that's a good clip from George Carlin, and the entire act has been linked in libertyinexile.com. Uh, you'll see it there, it's a very, very good act, and I guess in later life, George Carlin did become very, very pessimistic in a way, but still kept his, his optimistic humor intact. He was very, very precise in sort of what his message was, and you've seen probably thousands of clips up there just about his comedy and things that he's related to, so I do not need to bore you at length about that. Uh, that's a, a very interesting clip. <laughs> we like war. I think that's a, one of the greatest uh, pieces of stand-up in the last few years, so very, very happy to see that. And, of course, any comedian could make exactly the same jokes today, and they would still make sense. And since we're talking about comedians and uh, addressing a crowd, uh, let's talk a little bit about President Barack Obama giving a commencement speech at Ohio State University. We, the people, chose to do these things together because we know this country cannot accomplish great things if we pursue nothing greater than our own individual ambition. Unfortunately, you've grown up hearing voices that incessantly warn of government as nothing more than some separate sinister entity that's at the root of all our problems. That's me. Some of these same vo voices also do their best to gum up the works. Yep. They'll warn that tyranny's always lurking just around the corner. Sure is. You should reject these voices. Because what they suggest is that our brave and creative and unique experiment in self-rule is somehow just a sham with which we can't be trusted. I mean, it was thrown overboard a couple of years ago there, uh, President Obama. Do you not think so? We have never been a people who place all of our faith in government to solve our problems. <laughs> we shouldn't want to. But we don't think the government is the source of all our problems either. Mm. Because we understand that this democracy is ours. And as citizens, we understand that it's not about what America can do for us, it's about what can be done by us together through the hard and frustrating but absolutely necessary work of self-government. And class of 2013, you have to be involved in that process. I don't really think they have the time. They got the big student loans. Uh, they're facing one of the highest unemployment rates in recent memory. I really don't think they, I don't really think they have time for that unless they all want to become elected. Then I guess their employment rate is 100%. So good luck, ladies and gentlemen. Now, this speech made it, uh, obviously, its way around the conservative media and the, the talk radio people were, were all about it and tried to hammer on it. I think it's an interesting message. I think it's uh, very funny that at this point in his presidency, he has to speak this way. I mean, this guy is, is the controlling narrative. I don't understand why he has to act as if he's being overrun by everyone else who hates government. I, I, I mean, if you look at what's going on in the last... Uh, just throughout his term, the last five years of, of government. I mean, this has been his control. 
All these laws that have been passed have been signed by him, and most of the abuses have been bipartisan by the Democrats and the Republicans. I, I used to talk a, lot, a little bit about the warrantless wiretapping, which is, is now enshrined, and I, now, I guess is now so much a part of our, I guess, public discourse that people openly talk about it when we're talking about trying to spy on people who may have uh, bombed a part of our cities. So it's entrenched. It's in the entire public debate, in the public discourse, and we're seeing that it is facing a new day. And that's why it's always interesting to to try to listen in, to try to, to give a little bit of analysis about the day. I'm going to have to end it there on Liberty in Exile. It's always been a pleasure to speak to you. And if you have any feedback or anything, just go to libertyinexile.com. Uh, you can also send me an email, yael at live.ca yael at live.ca you can also tweet me up and uh, continue the conversation so I wish you all the best of luck in your own work, in your own lives I know you have uh, very much to do very much to I guess be thankful for as you continue your push to just get by but uh, good luck au revoir et bonne chance à tous Visit libertynexile.com.